You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening and welcome to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Cleffel. We're grooving to Thelonious Monk, and with me, I am honored to have the Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz, Gary Young. Thank you for joining me, Gary. Rick, it's good to be here. We're here to talk about the Morton Marcus Memorial Celebration. That's coming up next Saturday, November 6th. Tell us about the the celebration itself when does it what's the when and where does it take place well it's going to take place at the cabrillo college music recital hall at 7 30 next saturday november 6th and uh, for those of you who didn't get tickets or can't make the reading i want to let everybody know that community tv will be broadcasting the reading on november 12th at 10 p.m and november 13th at 8 p.m and uh robert hass uh former Poet Laureate of the United States, will be the guest reader, the headliner, and Joe Stroud and Stephen Kessler and I will be reading some poems from Morton's last book as well. So it should be a great night. Uh, Robert Huss also is a Pulitzer Prize winner as well. So. And a National Book Award winner, and if you <laughs> name the prize, he's probably won it. Well, I'm honored to have you as our uh, Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz. You're the first Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz, aren't you? The inaugural. Uh, yeah. talk, talk about how that came to be. Uh, I, I'm not sure how it came to be. The uh, Did they just call you up and say, hey, no, no, it's there was, you? There was, a, there was a process, but it, but it required um, people in the Cultural Council, Poetry Santa Cruz, uh, the Arts Commission, to decide that we should have a... Uh, poet laureate, and so they uh, they opened up the uh, the bidding, as it were. Applications were made, and 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 uh, and I was lucky enough to be chosen. Uh, clearly, I it was luck of the draw. I think as much as anything else, there is a lot of other poets who could just as easily have been chosen, and will be chosen. I'm sure that uh, in the sub subsequent years, we'll have more poets laureate, and it's just a wonderful thing that the arts community decided that poetry should have that kind of uh, presence in the community. Talk about what what do you do as the Poet Laureate? I do radio shows. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. Um, I have uh, several pro- projects, uh, including readings and um, literacy projects with young people and I'm working on getting poetry in the buses and I give a lot of talks I give a lot of readings I give a lot of uh, uh, well, uh, speaking engagements to groups and uh, try to keep poetry visible in the community well one of the community's most visible poets ever was of course Morton Marcus and I guess what I'm gonna just uh, take the bull by the horns here and read a poem from his book is the Santa Cruz Mountain Poems. Um, this is one he mentions. We'll hear some audio of uh, Morton today. I hosted an event with him and Laurie King, and he talks about uh, this book. And this is a, a poem from uh, the Santa Cruz Mountain Poems called To the Tall Spirit. Tall spirit of ashes, 
Do not preserve me from the weight of snow. Let me lie down with the fields and mouth the platitudes of mud. Do not conserve me against the spider's shroud. Show me the directions the worms refuse to take. Someone collects the footsteps I leave behind. Another sips at the edges of my sweat. Lead me to your robe of shadows. Raise me to your head, which is the hive of many voices. I want to put my face inside. I know whatever I am has long breath, and what I find of myself has the bitter taste of crushed leaves and a bear's heavy tread. The stones are my cousins, and the big rocks look down like uncles who cannot find a comfortable place. If I am only the damp space I blunder toward, I know that nothing can start before I arrive. You know, Morton just has such a great voice, and I'd like you to just talk a little bit about that poem because it has both the sense of Santa Cruz and I think really the sense of Morton Marcus as well. Well, the thing about Morton is that he had many voices, and and that's what's so astonishing is he could channel uh, the deep image and and almost the the cosmic in as he does in this poem, and mm-hmm. then merge it with something as quotidian as a tree or looking out at a meadow or holding up a, a snail shell, and that was his genius uh, and being able to move between those voices so effortlessly. Uh, you look at his book of immigrants poems and then look at origins and you think, was this really the same person? And yet it is. The voice is the same. But he taps into these different elements and these different wellsprings of poetic uh, awareness. And uh, the the poem that you just read in, in his Santa Cruz Mountain Poems is uh, a really well-loved book. And, and it went into many printings. And there's some. it's one of the, the most marvelous evocations of this area, I think, that anyone's ever produced. You know, one of the things I, I like about um, this particular book of poems and, and Morton and, and Santa Cruz is that it's so receptive to somebody like Morton, who's who himself, like you say, is very uh, metamorphic. Uh, he is very funny. He could be, you don't think of poets generally as being as funny as Morton is, but he could be, he was hilarious often. And I really liked his sense of, you know, being part of the community and how he helped keep poetry really alive in Santa Cruz and make it something that people really looked forward to. Well, Morton Marcus would have been a force wherever he landed. And to think that it was that it was just this area that somehow how bred him is 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 really not the whole picture. Mm-hmm. He was uh, an enormous presence. He had a, a very strong personality, a charismatic personality. And he cared deeply about this community. And you're right about the poetry in this community. He started uh, poetry readings uh, back at Zachary's in the day. This is back in the 60s and 70s. This is a long time ago. And it really did get things kick-started for the whole community. And then he became such a presence at Cabrillo College for 30 years. And then, of course, on the radio. And... Uh, you know, doing and then doing you know theater and you know the movie reviews and everything else. Um, he was just indefatigable and 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 he was funny. You're right about that. He was uh, he, he was uh, so charming because he was such a serious guy and so smart. He knew so much and his his knowledge was encyclopedic and and a little uh, promiscuous. He knew 
crazy things about you know the, this and that, and and he'd pull them in, and and he could tell stories and tell the history of whatever you somebody brought up, whether it was dog breeding or metallurgy. He was there. He knew what it was, and uh, and just a, a fun guy to be with. I miss him a lot. Well, I, I'd like you to talk about your experiences with, with Morton. Uh, when did you first meet him, and where were you in your poetic career when this happened? I was an undergraduate when I first met him. I came here in 1969. And you were in a, at UCSC? At UCSC. Uh-huh. And he had just come, and so I met him at poetry readings. And uh, Was he reading then? He was reading, and he was hosting readings. And uh, one of the most wonderful things about Mort, I was just a kid and uh, certainly had not proven uh, myself as a poet by any stretch. And he was so generous and so encouraging. <laughs> um, he treated me like a poet, and he certainly didn't have to because I really wasn't a poet yet. I was a baby poet. I was a, a would-be, could-be, wannabe poet. And he treated me as if I already was there. And you, you, that's an imaginable, immeasurable um, gift to a young writer. Someone who has already proven himself takes you seriously. And, uh, and then over the years, we just got to know each other better and better. I, standing here in the, in the studio, I've, I've just kind of overwhelmed by his presence because Stephen Kessler and I did the, the KOSP radio show here for 10 years. And so I, countless visits with Mort um, as a guest on that show, and then when he and Joe Stroud and, and uh, later Dennis Morton took over the poetry show, um, I was back here many, many times as a as a guest. So we've had we've had a lot of good times in these chairs here <laughs> with these mics, and so I'm 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 feeling I'm feeling his presence very strongly. In fact, is it okay if I read a poem oh, from his new book? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, it just seems so apropos. We're we're here in the studios of KUSP. Um, where he and I both spent a lot of time behind the mic. Um, I want to read a, a book from his new a poem from his new book, The Dark Figure in the Doorway, Last Poems, uh, called Radio. For 65 years, I've waited to hear the words of God, expecting them to resonate from the heavens in a thunderclap over the planet, orations of approval or bellows of anger, like the words of a grandfather speaking to the head of a child. All that time, I ignored or half-listened to the radio that sits like a miniature cathedral on the living room table, and from whose depths, muffled and staticky, come news reports of tra traffic congestion and foreign invasions, bulletins of airline crashes on snowy mountainsides, strikes at factories, sales at department stores, someone kicking a goal at the last second of play dance band music, shrieks of electrocuted guitars, terrorist bombings, and toothpaste brightening. These alternate with announcements of mastodons encased as if alive in box of ice, geese departing into sunsets and oceans arriving like giggling girls tumbling their bodies into the arms of their lovers, hurricanes, famines, politicians announcing their candidacy one day and declaring their takeover of the country the next. The announcer at Lakehurst in 1937, crying out as he watches the mooring zeppelin explode into flame, Oh, the humanity! Or is it the horror? The horror! Now we beam radio signals into deep space, scanning the heavens in our solitary vigil for words that will redeem us. And maybe there is no redemption. And day after day, God is proclaiming the way of his world from the miniature cathedral 
in the living room. Boy, that's just so great. It, it, and it really captures uh, how the immense effect of radio on our lives. And, and I think it's important to remember that. And, and the entirely verbal and language-oriented aspect of radio, that radio is the perfect medium for poetry for it to be heard and in many ways because all the words are divorced from anything but the speakers they're coming out of. Well, Morton was was keenly aware of the fact that radio waves do not disintegrate. They keep traveling through space and that they're out there somewhere. This broadcast is going to be shooting through the cosmos and uh, I love the image of the radio as a cathedral. Oh, that's really wonderful. I, I, can you read uh, one of your poems that you think uh, speaks to Morton's influence on you? Or just, that sounds good for the radio. Morton and I share a love of food. <laughs> um, Morton loved food. He loved good meals. He loved good talk. And I'll read, I'll read a poem about food and some other Santa Cruz friends from a book called Pleasure. Elizabeth fed me, pasta with anchovies, lentils with sage, always a different dish. Jean talked about love nests, the prairie in winter, and how once, as a child, he determined he was God. We sat at a table and looked out at a ginkgo and a locust, and in spring, a crabapple blossomed beneath the upstairs window. There were paintings on every wall, ceramics on every shelf, and flowers, orchids, zinnias, asters. Elizabeth once made a salad with spinach, walnuts, blue cheese, and pear. Then she picked a daylily from a bouquet on the counter, chopped it, and sprinkled it over the greens. We spent years that way, feasting on the world. Boy, that's really wonderful. It's so, it's so nice. And I think, you know, you too, uh, like Morton, you would have been a, a force anywhere you would have been, and you could have been the poet laureate of Las Vegas, <laughs> for that matter. But well, that's an interesting concept. <laughs> I wonder if they have a poet laureate. Well, but I think... I wonder if I could apply for the job. <laughs> that sounds like a fun job. I'm thinking of like a sequined soup with a big P on it on a cape or something. <laughs> but I think what it, your, your poem that you just read us really reminds me of Santa Cruz and, and, and also, too, uh, of the way that Morton was such a close observer and how, how important observation is to, to poetry. The world is our... You know, it's the palette. This is where we get get our material. And uh, Morton loved it here. He had lots of good friends here who miss him. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to read that particular poem. I have a lot of poems about food in this book. Um, but it also has friends in it. And that's really what makes food good. And that's what Morton was all about. He was an extraordinarily generous man. Uh, any of his students would tell you that. But his friends will tell you the same thing. And, and poets, too. I'm going to the uh, AWP conference. I've been asked to sit on a panel uh, that is going to be uh, a celebration of Morton. And people from all over the country are coming. That's the Associated Writing Program's uh, annual conference. And uh, his influence uh, was extraordinarily large. And he, uh, he downplayed that 
but it was there, and uh, now that he's gone, people feel like it's really important to to recognize that and let other people know just what an influence he was. Well, talk about the program for this reading. Do we know, you mentioned uh, Robert Haas and, and yourself and, and Stephen Kessler. Um, and Joe Stroud. And Joe Stroud. Uh, will there be anybody else there? And, and just give us an idea of... You know, will you be reading and talking? Will the audience be interacting with you? No, the idea behind the Morton Marcus Memorial Poetry Reading, and this is the inaugural one, there'll be one every year, mm-hmm. um, is to bring uh, some of the best poets in the country to Santa Cruz uh, to read. Morton... Boy, that sounds like a great... That's a great idea. <laughs> well, yes, and, and it's the kind of thing that, that, that is a perfect memorial for Morton. As I mentioned, he mm-hmm. was instrumental in really getting the poetry scene in our community going and keeping it going. And this is one of the most vital areas for poetry in the country. And that's no... Uh, it's no small part because of, of Morton's work. And uh, to bring in you know, great writers, and who, coincidentally, at least the first ones, will be great friends of, of Morton. And uh, Bob Hass and others who will be coming in um, all recognized Mort as a terrific poet and a wonderful friend. And so they'll be here, and uh, just this first reading will be a little different because uh, it is the first uh, memorial reading, and Morton's final book, The Dark Figure in the Doorway, uh, has just been released. And so, uh, Stephen, Joe, and I will be reading just a couple of poems of, of from Morton's. But the show is going to be uh, essentially Robert Hass reading. So, you know, when you were talking about this, uh, it, it struck me how important uh, community is to poetry. That poetry really requires uh, poets not to just sit and write and produce and send out stuff and get it published but to participate in their local communities and to embrace poetry and other poets in their communities and to use that to bring their own poetry to life. And it's kind of a, a one of the things about poetry, it strikes me, is it's very much a community feedback loop. It can be, and, and, and most of the time I think it is. I'm always hesitant to, to insist that that's what it be because I think of, of Emily Dickinson sitting in her room <laughs> and I think of other poets here in Santa Cruz sitting in their rooms and I don't think that they need to get on the, on the corner or up on the platform and declaim their, their poems. Uh, but they create, a, even, even those very private poets create a community if they give their poems to one other person to read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, those of us who, who do uh, get our poems out there to a larger audience, yes, it creates a, a bigger community. And it is wonderful, the, the writing groups and the, the people that come to readings here in Santa Cruz and, and in our area, very vital. And you're right, there's a, a wonderful uh, camaraderie and community between these writers. But I would suggest that, that that's only one kind of community. I mean, I think about all the people around the country who are going to meet in Washington, D.C. to talk about Mort. That, too, is a community. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that you, by publishing or by sending poems to other poets, um, you send out these poetic tentacles that, that, that um, braid a community across vast distances and, of course, across time as well. Now, um, I actually have a recording here that we're going to listen to. It's a recording I made back in 2006 when Lori R. King was uh, 
declared the Artist of the Year here in Santa Cruz. And it includes some, uh, Mort Marcus uh, was on the panel, but along with the, the late Jim Houston. And we're going to hear Morton talking about some of his uh, writing uh, experiences and his uh, writing techniques. So let's turn it over to the man of the hour. Okay, I'd like to ask, have each of the participants describe to us how a project has started. Do you start something that was actually published that we could go out and buy? I'd like to have each of the participants tell us when and where they first began that work. Was it at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning in front of their pad with their fine pen? Was it while they were driving their kids to school? Tell us and let us know to the beginnings of the mystery of writing. <laughs> well, I'm in a little different situation here since um, um, I write poetry. And um, I also write prose and also write novels. Um, uh, so I'll answer this two ways very quickly. Um, with poetry, it is either a series of words and sounds or an image that begins the poem. Why that image comes, why the sounds come, I have no idea. What I know is I have to follow them out. Sometimes I don't have to follow them out. But when I do, um, uh, it's like I'm on a runaway horse who is just taking me wherever he will. That's the first draft. Then um, the real work starts with uh, the revising. Um, with a novel, though, I, I write genre fiction also. And um, um, to me, um, uh, even if I wasn't writing genre fiction, story would always be most important. And I would make character, um, I would put the character into the story, even if the story is not um, uh, too well defined in my mind. Hopefully it isn't. And then I will let the characters carry it. But um, um, my novel, The Brezhnev Memo, which I'm sure all of you have read, um, um, started because I was, uh, someone dared me to um, uh, write a novel. And um, they said, you're always talking about the importance of mystery novels and detective novels and um, foreign intrigue novels, you know. Why don't you just shut up and write one? And um, uh, so I sat down and said, okay, I will. And I had met um, uh, two students in Athens. And um, the students asked me to take something to the island of Crete for them. That was it. You're listening to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Kleppel. We just heard Morton Marcus talk about his prose writing process. Morton sure was uh, a versatile writer, and I think that uh, you see that in his poetry. Poetry and his criticism and his operas and his novels. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, was, he was prolific, and um, the wonder is that, that, uh, that he got so much done. I don't know how he did it, to be honest. Well, one of the things I think that's very interesting uh, uh, about his work is the the polymorphic nature. T tell us about the opera. I, I didn't know he wrote an opera. And well, he had some a, a, an opera that I really don't know much about. I just know that he wrote one, and um, he was he was. I said before he was promiscuous, and I meant as as an artist, as an intellectual. Mm -hmm. uh, he his mind wandered everywhere, and he was. He was one of the most curious people I've ever met. I mean, he was really curious about about everything, and um, and it it exploded in in different forms. You just never knew where it was going to come. The fact that he uh, a lot of people know him as a prose poet and don't realize that he wrote you know volumes of of 
line verse, and some people only know him from the line verse. And of course, those who are really familiar know that he did both. But he's, you know, he's he's known in different quarters for different things. And I'm sure that people, you know, he had people who know him primarily as an educator, and some as a critic, and some as a as a you know as a film historian. Some as a poet, some as a novelist, and uh, he braided all these things together in a really quite marvelous and strangely coherent um, intellectual life. You know, that's what you just said, strangely coherent. That's something that really strikes me because here's a man who, who's written, you know, highfalutin poetry, genre fiction, opera, uh, stands up in front of the, the local movie theater and, and, and offers his criticism on, on Saturday mornings, runs a, runs a poetry show on, on the local radio station. Yet I think it, you're really right that there's a real strong thread of his character and his vision. You, If you were exposed to only one of any of those elements, if you stumbled across, if you only went to his film uh, criticism uh, showings and, and listened to him, if you somehow stumbled across one of his poems, you'd know instantly and you'd think, boy, this really fits. This isn't. It's not like he's experimenting or going out of, feels out of place here. This all this stuff really fits. No, it was never experimental. If he if he did it, he did it very very well. And and, and that's I think one of the things that uh, is is so apparent in his poetry. I'm going to just read one poem here. This is from uh, the dark figure in the doorway. What is alive in us? What vibrates in our animal skins is a harp string that is never still. A harp string tuned to the drone of silence. It is the single thread, the radiant filament that sews us to our coat of darkness, the umbilical that holds us to the planet each of us is, yet allows us to wander among the stars, the guy rope that secures us to ourselves, yet lets us venture into the darkness all the way to the planet of someone else. Morton, we're going to miss you, but we're going to have a, some great poetry readings in your name. Absolutely. Uh, Gary, could you read us one of your poems? Sure, let me pull one out here. I had, I had one of Mort's ready. Let oh, me. well... It, that's okay. No, that's okay. I, I'll, I can find something in here. You're listening to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Cleffel. I have with me poet Gary Young. He's a poet laureate of Santa Cruz. Thank you for joining me, Gary. Well, here's a here's a poem that... I know Mort liked because another thing that we shared was a love of cigars and uh, had many wonderful leisurely conversations over a stogie. When I step in from the deck after smoking a cigar, my wife glares at me and says, you stink, but I can't resist. They punctuate the routine drudgery of a day and not with a comma, but an exclamation point, a smoky ellipsis of desire, robusto, torpedo, maduro. We need a romance language to talk about cigars. Buckley once handed me a fat Cubano, a Romeo y Julieta made in a factory where a worker reads poetry aloud while the others roll. I could taste the difference. A cigar is never just a cigar. It's a wet kiss a tongue in your mouth, and both of you burning. 
Santa Cruz's Poet Laureate, Gary Young. You're listening to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. We're going to get back after a brief announcement. Gary, um, one of the things that struck me uh, uh, about the, the, the poem you read was the way that it evokes a certain place and a certain time. And I think that's one of the things about poetry that is sometimes overlooked because we think of it as a kind of a, a higher or finer art form. But one of the things I think that Morton did very well and that you did very well in that poem was to make poetry gritty again. I like to think that that our world, the gritty world, the mundane world, is um, is a perfect uh, place for poetry. And uh, I know that Morton, one of the things I loved most about his poetry is that he also was deeply interested in in fable and was able to take fabulous uh, rhetoric and and archetypal images and tie them into a contemporary or, or a modern or a very demotic um, pedestrian event and, and take that gritty, as you say, or, or just mundane situation and shine the light of, of fable or parable on it. And uh, I just grabbed one out of his Moments Without Names, his new and selected prose poems. Can I read this? Oh, Absolutely. It's a poem called Monsters. My daughter asks, Where do monsters come from, Daddy? I raise my arms and growl. She shrieks, then giggles, and punches me playfully in the chest. No real monster, she says, and pushes me in the chest again, this time as if urging me to take her to their place of origin. I shuffle to the den, take down a book with a photograph of Hitler in it, She contemplates the mustache, the hairdo, the flat, expressionless eyes. He's a man too, she says, as if I'd tried to fool her. She shuffles through the pages and comes upon a gloating Mussolini, shaved head, lower jaw thrust out, arms looped together across his chest. She grins, as she does at television cartoons, but says, No, Daddy, monsters, and heaves the book with both hands onto the couch beside her. I raise my arms again and growl. She giggles in response. And I am both happy and sad that she is unable to understand the lesson she has just taught me. Boy, that's really powerful. <laughs> he's, he's really good, isn't he? He taps a vein. Uh, let's hear another selection uh, from the uh, artists um, of the year uh, conversation. <laughs> I'm detecting a theme here of hearing voices. Oh. And, and this in, in this case, it's a good thing. I'm wondering if you could, <laughs> if each of you could tell us a little bit about when you, when you hear these voices, is it something that you imagine the words on the page? Do you imagine reading the words on the page? Do you imagine writing the words on the page? Or do you, Matt, do you speak them to yourselves? Morton, tell us. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, this is very interesting. One of my books, which you probably do know, is called The Santa Cruz Mountain Poems. And if you look through the book, um, um, a lot of the poems have titles, but some of them do not. 
And um, when I would go back into the mountains and sometimes fall asleep like a very young Rip Van Winkle who would get up much quicker also, um, I um, would sometimes hear voices. And um, as I've described many times before, I had um, um, my, a, a notebook tied to my belt on an old Kotex um, belt that belonged to my wife. <laughs> and, and what I could do, you see, there's a reason for it. Mart, the subject is literature. Oh, oh, I, I think I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> um, you can zoom it up on the elastic, you see, so all I could do is, it just was dangling down on my thigh and I can just zoom it up and I could start writing. And this proved to be um, uh, very practical because what, um, I'm sorry, I hope I'm, I couldn't be embarrassing you. I, I read your books. <laughs> um, uh, and I, what I would do is I would just put down these, these words that I heard and they were actually, I feel, spirits talking to me um, uh, from the, um, uh, the, the mountain paths that I was traveling way up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And um, uh, I never revised them. Those poems are in the book, and they are they're in italics. They have no titles, and I to me to me I call them the, the voices of the spirits of the mountain. Um, um, when I write fiction, however, my wife has come to the steps um, under the attic where I work and said, "Who do you have up there with you?" <laughs> and um, um, I said, "Oh, just some friends," because I talk dialogue all the time. Um, you've got you've got to be able to hear it. You know, it, uh, it, if it sits on the paper, it may well not work. And this is what F. Scott Fitzgerald found out when he went to Hollywood and tried to write scripts. The first thing they told him was his beautiful language and his wonderful dialogues on paper just did not work when they, were, when they were to be spoken. So I've always followed this idea of hearing voices and actually, you know, I'm making them up too. So very important for dialogue. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I'm sorry, my, my image of Martin Marcus has forever changed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, such a funny man. He, he was funny, and, and that's one of the things I think that you that informs all of his poetry, and, and you know, he, it informs his work. And it's important to have that kind of a, a sense of humor when you approach this. But I think it's also very interesting what he talked about hearing the voices of the spirits. In, in he the, meant it literally too. No, I absolutely. I, yes, could you talk? Did you ever talk with him about that? Yeah, we talked about in inspiration and hearing voices. And uh, how do you hear voices? Well, I think all poets hear the the voices in their heads. Mm -hmm. Morton, unlike a lot of poets, let the voices speak through him because he wanted to hear them. And uh, I certainly will declaim my own work when I'm writing. I encourage my students to write out loud essentially to, mm -hmm. to, to read their work while they're working on it because the poem is fundamentally uh, a breath I mean that's uh, the, the language we use and the uh, certainly the written language we use is, is a, a new artifact the, the poem is, is an utterance that, that starts inside and comes out as a breath and so those voices um are able to speak through us through our breath and so of course you you hear them it you you bring things to life as a as a poet now as a i'd like to just talk a little bit about your process as a poet 
how often do you sit down to write? Do you have a, a, a routine or do you wait for, for the voices? I've been writing for so long that, that I really can't say that I have a certain routine. I've never had a routine. I have certain ways that I work, mm-hmm. and they have been pretty much unchanging for 40 years. But uh, Well, tell us about those ways. Do you sit down? Uh, almost all my poems start in the notebook I carry, mm-hmm. and I don't keep it on a Kotex uh, <laughs> <laughs> string, but I, but I do keep it in my pocket, and uh, when I hear those voices or when I, when I, f- I feel sometimes just a rhythm, sometimes I'll just write a, uh, uh, rhythmic marks as if I'm scanning a line that I don't have any words for. Ah, interesting. And, um, and I take a lot of notes like that. And when I have time, when I get enough notes, or if I have something that's really moving me, then I'll type out the notes from my notebook and start scratching on them and then retyping and putting more emendations on it, retyping and retyping, and made a lot easier by the computer. But I use my computer to write the same way I use my typewriter. I just type a draft, write all over it till there's no more room, and then type out the new draft and uh, until I can't make it any better, and then I leave it alone. How do you know when to leave it alone? Do you read? The, do you have a, an audience that you read to? Uh, uh, um, uh, a writing group, so to speak. I have a, a, a very personal way. I don't know that this is would work for anyone else. But when I'm working on a poem, uh, I can keep keep it in my head, mm-hmm. and I will often just walk around and I'll try different lines and I'll try different words and I and I remember different drafts and I'll keep it all in my head. And when the poem is done, I can't remember it. Boy, that's interesting. It just goes away. I, I, I mean, it's just like I hardly have, have any of my poems memorized, but while I'm writing them, I have them all in my head and carry them with me. How many poems are you carrying with you right now? Right now, I'm not carrying any with me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I hope that I'm carrying several books with me that uh, mm-hmm. eventually I'll have time to, to well, listen to and write down. Can you find one for us? Give us an idea of something that, that, you, uh, that you pulled out of your notebook. Almost all the poems in these in all of these books mm-hmm. came out of a notebook first. I very very seldom sit down at the typewriter and start writing a poem. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's hear one of your poems that you think is uh, appropriate for this baseball oriented evening, and also uh, for Martin Morton Marcus. And I think that you know Morton. It's my sense of Morton that that he he. Did he did he like sports? He loved sports. He yeah. was, uh, and he knew a lot about sports. Mm-hmm. He was uh, a boxer when he was young, and he was Boy, also. Boy, he looks like one, doesn't he? I never he was thought also, about that. Well, what, but he doesn't look or didn't look like, uh, for much of his life, was a basketball player. And really, he, and he was a, a fantastic basketball player, and he coached basketball, and he knew the sport very very well, and. Uh, but I'm sure he, he would be able to talk to you about any sport that you might have in mind. I have, here it is. I have a poem about baseball. Now, since, you, since you mentioned baseball and since I have no idea how the Giants are doing right now, but when I left the game, they were ahead two to nothing. I hope it's nine to nothing now. Um, but this is, a, this is a poem about baseball. The boys have no idea how beautiful they are. And this, of course makes them lovelier. They jog in loose formation. They stretch and run and never tire. Their uniforms, bloodied where a steel cleat has caught an ankle or grass-stained and streaked with dirt after a hard slide, cannot camouflage their sadness or their splendor. 
They are so lonesome in their bodies. Boy, that's really nice. Now, one of the things that I think is is uh, so interesting uh, about Morton's work is how um, he, no matter what format he was writing in, he really seemed to have control of his language. I mean, there was never any kind of a bleed through that you don't feel that the work in one area ever muddled the other. And, and I'm wondering, it, did he work on mater- on many different poems at once, do you know? Or did he, or, or, on in many formats at once? That is, was he writing novels, poetry, operas, and film criticism all at the same time? Or did he I, I know that he was that 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 he would be writing poetry and and then would still knock out something about a movie but it's my understanding as I remember he tended to write in spurts and I know that he wrote origins as as in, in a rush the the Santa Cruz mountain poems in a rush um, the scrapbook of immigrants he was focused on that um, exclusively for a while, and I, I think he he tended to let books um, overwhelm him until until they they had to come out, and that's as I recall um, how most of his books were were written. Let's hear Morton again. Uh, this is again from the Artist of the Year uh, show. Yeah, um, I think it may be more internal with me because I, the images that Jim used, I've used a lot um, um, in both discussions and in critical writing, that I do feel there are many, many people living inside me, and I think there are many people living inside us all. I just go to DNA now. Science is beginning even to talk this way. Um, but it is finding that, that person inside and letting them speak, I think... Um, the image that I have is that with all that hubbub that's going inside, someone finally says, no, it's my turn to talk. And he just pushes everyone back, and then he, st- he or she starts talking. Now, what's so interesting about that is when a character starts talking, and this is even in poetry because I have dialogue in, um, in my prose poems, um, nuances of that person's character begin to come out in the speech that they use. So you're actually getting character in the way they start talking. And that is extremely exciting to me because I don't know who these people are. In one of my novels, um, um, my hero has been taken captive um, uh, by these smugglers. And um, they stop in a place called Cedia, which is on the east coast of Crete. And um, um, they get off to take on some supplies, and um, the leader just walks off and walks down the dock, goes on to another um, boat, and then comes back with this guy behind him, this big, tall guy. And the guy who's guarding the protagonist says, he's Jim, he's Jim. And I say, who's Jim? (laughs) I have no idea who this guy is. And he just walks right into the novel. And... um, uh, and he's fascinating. I mean, he's an absolutely fascinating character um, who um, then is developed on the rest of the trip. Um, 
That does not mean that that's the way it turns out, as Jim um, uh, says, because this is, this is the beginning. And I, I know that Jim probably wants to emphasize this, and I do. The idea of craft, of really making it all work, of what Lori says about you know her first draft, sometimes I can't even understand my first draft. So I'm, um, I have to have my wife interpret them. So I should give her credit for writing this stuff. Um, um, but it, uh, it, it's that, that what comes afterwards, all writing, I should say, and I don't know this is one of your questions, to me is discovery. Why had that character walked in? What did these um, series of words and rhythms and images mean? I'm trying to find that meaning. I desperately have to find that meaning because maybe it gives me a sense of order in the world. Um, but after that, or maybe sometimes before it, comes the revisions, comes the polishings, comes really putting this stuff together. So what you see, as W.B. Yeats says, should seem like a moment's thought just written right off. That's a trick. Art comes from the word artifice, which is false, okay? We are making what seems to be a moment's um, a thought, what seems to be a completely thought out plot and characters. But it's all tricks up the writer's sleeve, and that's craft that does that. My name is Rick Cleffel. You're listening to Talk of the Bay. With me is Santa Cruz's poet laureate, Gary Young. We're talking about the Morton uh, Marcus Memorial reading that's coming up. Gary, could you remind us when that is? Sure. It's next Saturday, November 6th at 730 uh, the admission is free, although I believe that uh, the tickets have all been given out. I'm sure that there will be some space, so if you're willing to take a a risk, come on down at 7.30 at the Cabrillo College Music Recital Hall. It's going to be a great night. You know, one of the things that I, that I think was interesting in, in what we just heard uh, Morton talking about was this idea of artifice and uh, how it, we, the, the writer just makes stuff the idea is to make it look easy, isn't it? That's the whole trick. Morton and I talked about this a lot. Uh, we agreed very much that our job is to erase the effort. You're supposed to make the poem look like it just popped into your head. And uh, what I always tell my students, I say, look, I can see you tap dancing here. We don't want to see you tap dancing. We just, you, know, we, you don't want to see the work. You just want it to come out as if you hadn't worked on it at all. And that's the artifice he was talking about. I'm wondering if you would be willing to uh, pull out another one of your own poems that, uh, or you've got Morton there. Let's go with Morton. Okay, yeah, I, I have a poem of Morton's. That we keep talking about how how funny he was, and he was marvelously funny. Uh, but it, uh, one of the aspects of his of his humor that I that I want to just mention is that he was he was both self deprecating, and one of the things that I think that made him um, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have 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 agreed with that. He said, "Oh no no no! I'm a, my ego is huge. It fills the room." But he was he was always willing to let somebody else take credit for things, and uh, he didn't take himself seriously. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say that he wasn't a serious person, but he didn't let his seriousness. And he was a very serious writer and a very serious man, but he didn't take that seriously. And um, if, if, if that nuance makes sense, um, he, he allowed himself to be foolish 
Mm-hmm. He allowed himself to be foolish even in, in his work, and he made fun of himself in, in his work. And it was a wonderfully disarming tactic, which often set you up for a sucker punch in his poems. Um, so I wanted to read a, a poem called New Year's Eve. Uh, this is another book from, a poem from his last book. It's gotten so I'm almost ashamed to write a funny poem. Even my wife upbraids me. In this day and age, things are too final. Each event is seasoned with our doom, like a roast heading inevitably toward the oven. Still, I can't stop laughing. All the terror, tragedy, injustice, wars, all the hatreds and jealousies that we first experienced in those caves dripping with shadows and paint, smeared walls, are still around. And it seems that the only sanity is to laugh insanely. So understand this poet, or know that he'll stop laughing when the world becomes, as it's becoming, too funny for words. <laughs> Extraordinarily uh, philosophic and, and, and really a kind of, sh- of shattering poem that is very funny. Yeah, that's... Well, one of the things I think that... that uh, makes his work so appealing is that he allows the reader to participate in in a way that I think some that that's not particularly common in poetry that to allows the reader to the the poem to get under the skin of the reader to oh, the reader more it's always like gloves, invites the reader right. into the poem come on I've got this poem come on you're gonna love this poem yeah yeah and he's really good at that uh, I think that that's uh, and that's again maybe I think part of uh, an outgrowth at least or, or maybe it's the other way around maybe the of his community work I think that you know his outreach his ability to start these poetry groups to get on the radio that all that is either a, a reflection of or reflected in his ability to get under the reader's skin there's a, a, a well he was a teacher mm-hmm. and I mean he was a brilliant teacher and he taught for a long time and he loved to teach and he loved to say look look at this let me tell you about this and he would do it in his lectures he'd do it at a dinner he would do it in his classrooms he'd do it to a guy on the street because he was an enthusiast and he was capable he was gifted to to um, open people's eyes to things and there are an enormous number of people in this community who will say oh Morton Marcus turned me on to this kind of music or this kind of painting or this kind of poetry. Uh, let's hear one more passage from Morton. This is fascinating. We have uh, somebody who writes too big, somebody who writes too small. Morton, where do you fit in the equation? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> too big. <laughs> um, there is the famous um, a little talk between Hemingway and um, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald where um, uh, I think it was Fitzgerald, wasn't it, who defined that you're either a putter-inner or a taker-outer. And um, uh, obviously, um, uh, Hemingway was a, um, um, uh, a putter-inner because he started so small, so perfectly. And Fitzgerald, you know, had these beautifully mellifluous sentences. It's so gorgeous to read them. Um, um, and um, uh, I like to go for it all um, uh, and then whittle down. But you've got to understand that I'm unscrupulous. Um, um, I am like a man with a machete, and I know they, things have to go, and I'm just, I'm brutal. Um, uh, after I get past the joy of the first draft and maybe the second draft, 
things really, really have to just tie in because I'm not thinking of me anymore. I'm thinking of you. And that's one thing we haven't mentioned. This whole idea of writing, if you're writing for your journal, as a teacher, um, and maybe as a human being, I'm really not, I can't help you, and I'm not probably interested in what you've written. But if you're writing a novel or a short story or a, a book of poems, then the concern is no longer with the self, but how do you communicate that? How do you communicate that experience as well as the ideas? And if that's the case, then we have all of these techniques we've been talking about and revision and shaping to get over that impression you want is what's all important. When I teach um, a, a workshop, you know, what I tell everyone there is don't be insulted by what I'm going to say because what I'm thinking about is the best impression your piece can make on a reader and that's what you have to be concerned with. So, and the way I do it, you know, I just, because I'm that gushing kind of guy, I just put it all down and then just um, know that I have to be as ruthless with it as I, um, as I can be. We'd like to know when the... the Gary, I'm glad he kind of corroborated what I just said. I was, when he started talking, I thought, uh-oh. No, this is good. He's, 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 it's just what I said. All right, I'm, I was happy to hear that. Uh, you're listening to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Cleffel, and with me is Gary Young, the poet laureate of Santa Cruz. He's going to read one of his own poems. I'll read a poem about uh, a circus. Acrobats vanished behind a veil of thick blue smoke. Jugglers tossed hatchets and knives, but it was hot. My son was restless, and we wandered out to the deserted midway. My son ran between the empty amusements while a loudspeaker blared, Come see the world's smallest horse. I could hear the animal whinny from its stall while the disembodied voice called, Come on over, come on in, this is something that you'll never see again. My son pushed his way through a padlocked gate and was too excited to answer when I called him back, or perhaps he couldn't hear me over the tape's continuous loop, crying, He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Wow. Thank you, Gary. You've been listening to Talk of the Bay. I've been your host, Rick Cleffel. With me, I've had the fabulous Gary Young. He's a poet laureate of Santa Cruz. Gary, would you remind us one more time about the timing of the Morton Marcus, uh, the first Morton Marcus Memorial Reading? And this, these will be continuing. They'll be bringing poets in every year. Every year. This is, this is the inaugural, the first annual Morton Marcus Memorial Poetry Reading featuring... Robert Hass, the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winner and the U.S. Poet Laureate. And he will be reading November 6th at 7.30, Cabrillo College Music Recital Hall. Uh, Stephen Kessler and uh, Joe Stroud and I will also be reading uh, a few poems of Morton from his new book. And I would like to remind you that this will be aired on Community TV November 12th at 10 p.m. and November 13th at 8 p.m. Gary Young, Poet Laureate of Santa Cruz, thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.